This is the Talk Editions podcast. If you're a historian, you you gather that material and you can be rather clinical about it at arm's length, but our job is to animate it, reanimate it, mm. and make, turn it into something that is very visceral and tangible and that will help to people to question the systems or to feel something. Today we'll hear from composer Hannah Kendall. Described as intricately and skillfully wrought by the Sunday Times, Hannah's music has attracted the attentions of the London Philharmonic Orchestra, BBC Singers, Seattle Symphony Orchestra, and Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, with performances at the Royal Festival Hall, Queen Elizabeth Hall, the Royal Opera House's Lindbury Studio Theatre, Westminster, Canterbury, Gloucester, and St. Paul's Cathedrals, Westminster Abbey, and Cheltenham Music Festival. Talk was lucky enough to work with Hannah in very early 2020 when we were in residence at Columbia University, where Hannah is currently a doctoral fellow. Hannah invited Elaine Michener onto the podcast today, and she does an excellent job of introducing her, so I'll just let her take it away. So I am Hannah Kendall. I'm a composer and I'm in London at the moment and it is a privilege really um, to have been asked to choose an artist to just speak with for, I don't know, for however long that we speak, (laughs) Elaine. Um, (laughs) Could be a long um, time. (laughs) (laughs) um, For Tack Ensemble's podcast and I've chosen Elaine Michener who's also in London but we're both I don't know in our spare rooms via Zoom in London at the moment but personally um, as you know I've, I mean I've gushed about this already I think you're one of the most iconic artists working right now and I just can't wait to dig deeper into some hopefully very interesting conversations so thank you Elaine for agreeing Oh, it was a pleasure. It's a pleasure, Hannah. I am, um, I'm starstruck at the moment because I've had the, the, the honour and privilege of seeing you on TV, the BBC Proms, first night, oh, we yeah. oh, and, yes, right. and uh, <laughs> watched on, kind of with, kind of clenching, just everything and kind of buttocks clenched and <laughs> everything kind of <laughs> contracted because I was like, oh, yes, yes. Yes, I was so happy for you. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, so so, I don't know, in case our American listeners might not know, well, I don't know whether, (laughs) do people know what the Proms, what the Proms Festival is? Well, it's the world's largest festival. Music, yeah. Yeah, for classical music. You know, obviously with the pandemic this year, it looked a bit different, but I grew up watching the proms on TV and listening on the radio and going to live concerts and to be asked to write a piece to open the festival was pretty special but it was also very strange being the only audience member in the Royal Albert Hall which usually seats 5,000 people. <laughs> you looked incredibly regal and I thought yeah I know Hannah and I workshopped her opera and I think she's fantastic and she's just like super brilliant and I'm looking forward to how this conversation will grow yeah. and evolve. Well, I think what I want, I'm aching to do, I want to read your biography. 2020 is easy. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah, right. Oh, gosh. We can speak about, we can speak about that as well. So Elaine, born and raised in East London of Jamaican heritage. Elaine Michener is a contemporary vocalist, movement artist and composer. She has performed and collaborated with numerous leading artists, including Carme Iowa, Moore Mother, Mark Padmore, George E. Lewis, The Otolith Group, Sonia Boyce, Tamsi Davis, Hamid Drake, Van Hoon Company, Apartment House, David Toop, London Sinfonietta, Christian Markley, Ensemble Manufacturer for Actuel Music, William Parker. That's a great list. <laughs> I hope I pronounced all of those correctly. Much better than I could. <laughs> there's more, there's more. She is a founder of collective electroacoustic trio, The Rolling Calf, with Jason Yard and Neil Charles. 
Her sound works are held in a curated collection by George B. Lewis at Darmstadt Festival and also featured at Holland and Retriennial festivals, as well as participating in the showroom's Inflorescence Project. In October, Elaine will premiere on Being Human as Praxis at Donna Eschenen which brings together five new works by Afro-diasporic and European composers inspired by cultural theorist Sylvia Winter, directed by choreographer Dom Van Hoon with MAM. In 21-22, Elaine is one of 50 selected artists whose work will feature in the British Art Show's touring exhibition. Elaine! Looks <laughs> oh, like you've got quite a lot on for 2020. Yeah, it's been a strange one. It's been mm. a strange one for every uh, creative yeah. person, I think, and not just creative people, it's just strange for the whole world. Um, mm. I guess if you are in somewhere really remote, it's just business as usual, because mm. you're untouched, hopefully untouched by coronavirus, uh, this modern plague, but as I guess for us as artists, it feels weird calling myself an artist, but for those of us who having an audience is really important, it's an intrinsic part of what we do, not being able to present in front of an audience has really been rather traumatic. I speak for myself in mm. that I really hadn't understood how hard it was for me the effect of it until quite late um so about maybe a month or two ago and uh, I was saying to George George Lewis yeah. that I felt concussed mm. I realized I had been suffering this kind of concussion mm. from because my last performance was a sweet tooth in mm. Bergen for Borealis Festival on the 8th of March so that was the last time I actually engaged with a, a real life audience yeah well that's the thing I mean I think that's what I take from your work because what I take from your work is that you're not presenting in front of an audience you're very actively engaging with and it, you know it doesn't even really feel right to call it's an audience, you know, mm. their fellow participants in your work. It's a two-way street and, you know, and if that's suddenly then taken away, I can completely understand how you might, you know, be feeling like that because it's, I imagine, such a huge part of your practice and the way that you choose to work and choose to devise your works, which is highly intensive and collaborative working with other people from beginning to end, which maybe ends with those participants in the space. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I yeah, the, they're not the audience. They are the fellow travellers of the piece. They are, it doesn't happen without them. And that, that, that kind of sounds a bit banal, but because mm. people get up in a concert hall and perform and there's an audience. <laughs> but it's, yeah. as you've experienced in my work and, and have observed, it is about drawing on those energies and taking, mm. taking people on that journey and that yeah. experience. Because I, I, I guess what I want is for them to feel as engaged and as, and as exhausted as I am and those who are working with me. Because, you know, it's not light entertainment, particularly yeah. if we're dealing with very um, heavy subject matters. So, yeah. and I, you know, I love a bit of five, six, seven, eight, okay? <laughs> and I always make sure there's time for that as well, right? So that's the kind of secret side of me, you know? So uh, I just want to be in a musical. You know, I just want to be in a comedy, you know? So, <laughs> but I don't produce works like that. Yeah. But, so yeah. it's, so I think what it is, is that I want, I want the because I think a lot about things and I'm not particularly academic as in I don't write papers and things but the thought processes are there I'm drawing on lots of different kinds of stimuli and mm. the energy of the room is very important to me the energy of the audience is vital mm. and I guess some of that comes from a church upbringing actually mm. And that, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because mm. I don't attend church anymore. So mm. there's, there's, there's that thing. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I'm I, particularly interested because I, I do go to church still right. after a, a hiatus 
a, uh, a backslider, backslip. Oh, oh you, you said it, you said it. But yeah, but I think it is interesting. Um, and also, we have worked together, and, um, and that was a huge reason of why you know, I wanted to talk to you in, in uh, depth as well. And so, and I didn't know this about you, about the, um, you know, the church side, which yes. is um, such a huge part of my practice and my day-to-day after, you know, going to church because that's what you did as part of being um, a Caribbean family. You know, this is what you do. You go to church on Sunday and doing that for my whole life and going to a convent school and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Oh. And then taking a break from that for the whole of my 20s, but then coming back to it and now actively engaging and having a spiritual life. That's really fascinating because it's not something that is talked about, particularly Mm. in the area of contemporary new music. Sure. um, (laughs) Because everyone's so rational and everyone's a humanist. And they're very vocal about that. But if you you say, oh, I'm I'm a Christian or I was raised in a Christian household, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, and... uh, The eye stays over. Yeah, the eye stays over. But, you know, I mean, my work is coming out of that, you know, that experience of... I grew up... Well, I was taken to church to be kept off the streets. That makes it sound as though I was this kind of ragtag in and out of kind of uh, going to jail or whatever, you know, whatever, just one step away from being <laughs> taken into care. No, I didn't have that kind of family background. Um, my, my dad was quite roguish, but he, yeah, he was quite militant, you know, politically militant. And so we were given this heavy diet of Naya Bingi and dub music and Rastafarianism, mm-hmm. even though he he didn't have dreadlocks mm. himself mm. but you know every sunday was hours of Uroy oh, okay. and mm. i don't know max romeo and just heavy dub music mm. and i knew more about that than i knew about any other religion mm. really mm. and my mum reclaimed her faith she mm. was raised in a seventh-day adventist church mm-hmm. so then one day she bumped into someone randomly a nurse friend and that person was an Adventist as well and mum started to go to church on Saturdays which we thought was very odd as kids (laughs) okay so um, dad was like take them take them keep them off the streets (laughs) so we were taken to church and it was the first time that we came across other the third of three the youngest of three Mm -hmm. and uh, it was the first time we saw young black kids because mm. it was predominantly black mm-hmm. like us our age but phenomenally talented musicians mm. could get up and speak mm. and lead and address a, a large audience of you know it's a congregation yeah. i'd never seen anything like that before never you know i kind of yeah. you know enjoyed How old you? Of that. i would have been about 10 or 11 and I really enjoyed it we got into it my brother I have um, an older sister with a a learning disability Mm. so she she came with us and it was the three of us and with mom and we we started to get really involved Mm. of course my dad was horrified (laughs) because he was like I only want you to take them to keep them off the streets. They've not lived life yet. <laughs> They're giving their, getting baptised. They haven't lived life yet. I remember, is that way that I If the children want to give their life to the Lord. You know, it's this kind of general sound. Oh, this is really wow. terrible. My, my dad died seven years ago. He'd be spinning in his grave hearing me try to mimic him. <laughs> but I think he was like, well, you haven't lived. Mm. why are you dedicating yourself to this kind of pious life when mm. you you haven't got anything to reject basically mm. oh interesting and, and i think he, he wanted us to just have experienced life a bit ex- whatever that means mm. we could experience life as long as we didn't end up in prison mm. or get pregnant <laughs> unmarried you know but yeah, to a point get involved in drugs you know or the usual pointers for parents yes. Yes, exactly. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. But it was uh, it was there that I discovered. Well, I always liked singing. I learnt. um, uh, I went to a state primary school where music wasn't the central thing, but we weren't discouraged from playing music. And and, and, Mm. and an elderly lady turned up one day and 
my teacher asked for volunteers. And I was always volunteering myself for things and I put my hand up and then it was a lottery. I ended up learning to play the recorder. Mm. And I just thought it shouldn't be like that. Every child should be able to yeah. have access. Yeah. But I just happened to stick my hand up before a number mm. of others and four of us were selected. And this thing called music was presented. Mm. And I, I made the fatal mistake of thinking it was easy. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, this is easy, this yeah. music thing. But going to church and hearing music making of quite a different level, that kind of, it was shocking. I was like, I'm rubbish. Mm -hmm. You know, people who could really sing and could play this theme. You know, there was families where they could all play. There were multi-instrumentalists. Wow. And playing very sophisticated, a lot of it coming from the States, but harmonically uh, very uh, progressive mm. and sophisticated. And I thought, wow, I've got to up my game. And so, as I'm sure you will know, and you, I'm sure you'll agree, once it's detected that you have a talent, sort of, mm. particularly in the kind of, if the church has a lot of Afro-Caribbean people in there, mm. they're always, yeah, you have talent, it must be the talent <laughs> of the Lord. Right, so, <laughs> okay, you know, I can't argue back, because they're your yeah. elders, you know, you yeah, just yeah, yeah. told, you know, you know what I mean? And um, I can't remember how I, I ended up singing, but I was, I was asked to, to sing a special item for an mm. afternoon youth program. And it was the, I enjoyed it. It was terrifying, you know, mm. to a backing track or something. I can't remember now. But, um, <laughs> there were lots of amens and ah. And uh, from then on, I just, I just had, kept singing. That's really, that's really interesting. But how is that informing your, your work specifically? Because, you know, as you were saying, your work is, you know, unashamedly hard hitting. You tackle you know, difficult subjects. It's not necessarily easy listening. And I mean, I suppose I'm thinking of Sweet Tooth in particular now. And, and also because you mentioned uh, that, you know, in church that you're performing music and works from the States. And, and I think, you know, why I'm particularly drawn to you and your work specifically is that you're coming from very much a black British viewpoint yeah which I mean I don't know about you but for me when talking about um you know blackness or the African diaspora it's almost as though it's automatically assumed that that's about African Americanism yes and you know black Britishness isn't you know, really a thing, you know, in art or artwork. And so what I love about you is that you seem to be carving out something unique and very specific that is to do with the Black British experience. And I wonder if, if any of that came from, you know, your church life or, or, you know, or, so. or where does it come from? You know? Well, it was, yeah, home and church. Um, I think because my parents were very politically engaged we were raised, um, my parents, although they met in London, mm. um, they took it upon themselves to teach us about uh, Jamaican history, mm -hmm. what happened in terms of colonialism, their experiences of being immigrants in London in the mm -hmm. 60s. My dad bought Ebony magazine, but he also bought the Jamaican Gleaner. So we had this it was very balanced mm. and I think also playing reggae music in the household was another way of kind of deepening our cultural mm. uh, identity and references but a lot of the churches whether Adventism, Pentecostal, Church of God, mm. they, a lot of those churches in the UK are black-led mm. and that came out of coming, a lot of people coming from the Caribbean wanting to continue their church uh, going activities, going to churches, seeing that it was segregated. Mm, yes. There was a, a, an elder who died, I think maybe last month or so, my brother, who is, is very active in church, he's an, an elder, he, he said, oh, do you remember brother so-and-so? So I was like, oh yeah, yeah, he said, militant, militant. And I started laughing because I remember this man, he established, he came from Jamaica, to London, wanted to go to an Adventist church in London and was basically mm. told, you can't come in here. And he's like, what? And it's a segregated general conference. He's like, nope, 
Mm. No, if they don't want me, I'll establish my own branch. Oh my goodness. Sorry, this is mind blowing. This is blowing my mind because I don't think I really actively considered the importance of being very specifically in a black church and being around, you know, black leaders. Yeah. Yeah. And the importance of that. And my mother, she was she's a head teacher and very much a leader, confident leader. That's a huge part. That's that's incredible. Huge like and probably the most important role model but actually those formative years of seeing black people thrive in a church setting is a huge part of for me personally spurring myself on in you know working within a predominantly white environment white yeah. space and you know I'm just yeah. now thinking maybe that's a huge part of it well you don't realize these things until much later on yeah you don't and that's why I've reflected on it as I've gotten older, as I get older, I'm thinking, wow, these, these, they're the, the iconoclasts. These are mm. the people who've paved the way. They made the sacrifices. A lot of them were leading in church, but may not have had jobs which enabled them to be leaders. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. That's not because they didn't have the skill set or they weren't intelligent enough. It's because of racism, mm. because of prejudice, because they are also a different generation. Mm. You know, and so what I then observed was that people who my brother's age are slightly older, so these people would be maybe in their 60s, mid 60s, and I'm talking like 40 years ago, they would have gone to university. So these are black people going to university Mm. and they're graduating and they've got professional jobs Mm. and they're coming to church. And so that, if you're a youngster, yeah, and you're seeing that, I can do that yeah i can be a doctor i can be a teacher i can be a head teacher i can be a professor Mm. and when you see that you realize you can but actually elaine this is a really huge thing because i do not know any other person doing what you're doing (laughs) if you think about it like who else is doing it do you know what i mean well, I mean, it, there's it, no it's, one. They're, they're more sensible because there's no money in what I do. <laughs> <laughs> and there have been days, there have been days like, Elaine, you could have gone the easier route. You could have gone the easier route. You could have no. gone more commercial. But it's not in me. <laughs> and that, and actually, that's not godly, really, actually. Yeah. No, it's not, not the easy route. But anyway, this isn't, uh, this isn't a Christian podcast. No, it's not. <laughs> so, but, but it is, but it, you know, it's interesting how that has informed you. Could you tell us a bit about Sweet Tooth? Shall we get into that? Yes, we can talk about Sweet Tooth. Introduce it, you know, summarise it a bit. Sweet Tooth basically is an examination of the relationship between the UK and the Caribbean through the Atlantic sugar trade and the legacy of that, which we are all living through now. And I had to think about sugar as a substance. It's something that's incredibly addictive. It's so bad for you, but the human costs Mm. of feeding that addiction from the uh, late 17th, 18th century, the millions of enslaved Africans who lost their lives to cultivate cane, turn that into sugar, to feed the, an addiction in a country 5,000 miles away, mm. which those people who consumed it wouldn't care how it arrived as long as it was there. And it's, it's incredible when you think about addiction and how many lives need to be lost in order to feed that addiction. And so I decided to do this project because uh, when my dad died, I was thinking about stuff that connected us and we both shared a sweet tooth. And uh, I used to go to Edinburgh and I used to work for the Royal Overseas League music competition. Hmm. And they had a clubhouse on Princess Street in Edinburgh. And on my first trip there, my manager the director of rosl arts who became a very dear friend sadly passed away um he said there's a substance in scotland you like sugar right i was like yeah (laughs) so what um there's a national suite in scotland called tablets and it's basically like fudge but crumbly you're not you know you know know, it you know know, know. and he bought some for me and i had it and i was addicted Mm. I told my dad about it. He's like, there's nothing sweeter than sugar cane. He's like, you haven't tasted this. (laughs) I gave it to him and dad was addicted. So to cut a long story short, 
I became his tablet dealer. Every time <laughs> I went to Scotland, I had to bring back tablet and he was very fussy about it mm. not that last batch it was rubbish get the other one <laughs> so when he passed you know you kind of when someone passes away you try to think what's the trauma of it but also you try to think of happier times you know mm. and so I started thinking about this tablet addiction and then I thought oh the sugar in Scotland mm. how did it become wealthy why are the mm. Scottish and then it all starts to come together because yeah. I don't know about you, but my education about the slave trade was basically about North, what happened in North America. Yeah, yeah, in the yeah. South. Mm -hmm. Nobody talked about what happened in the Caribbean. Okay? Absolutely the same for me. Nothing, yep. right? Nothing, so nothing. So I'm just, I, I became quite angry because I thought, well, so how many generations have been mis, misinformed Mm. and ill-educated and it's because of that why we have these racial tensions mm. now and so Sweet Tooth looked at the system of the sugar trade which really was like the zenith of capitalist, capitalism because if mm. you can successfully not pay someone because they are not considered human mm. their chattel then you've saved yourself shitloads of money, excuse mm. my French, but that's basically what it was because in, by enslaving people, they have no rights. They're not human anyway. They're just a commodity and they're there to work. They're like the machine. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do with Sweet Tooth was to give them back their humanity because out of this horrendous Holocaust, and this is human history, this is, this is world history, mm -hmm an incredible culture was born, which is mm. shared around the Caribbean. Yeah. So we come from survivors. Mm. And that for me was something to celebrate and be proud of. Mm. Because across the Caribbean, there are, there are variations on a theme, but it's the same thing. It can be the food, it can be the phrase, it can be the big drum tradition. It's all shared, <laughs> you know, it, the hairstyle, you know, just, just a way of being and for me that is something to celebrate and that's what I wanted to I didn't want Sweet Tooth to be a piece about victimhood mm. although there were millions of victims mm. there were also slave revolts successful ones yeah with this misconception that the abolitionists in the UK caused the end of slavery no enslaved yeah. Africans claimed their freedom yeah, and I think that's what's so powerful about the piece is that it's not stuck in one place. It's constantly shifting from, yeah, I want to touch on the realities of slavery very specifically to the United Kingdom, which I don't know who's going to be listening to this, but if it's an American audience, um, just to highlight the fact that in, in America and, you know, my, me being based in New York for the past couple of years, there is at least some acknowledgement of slavery having happened because it was in the backyard. Yeah. There is, I, I can't quite describe the fact that in the United Kingdom, having grown up there, if you talk to someone on the street, there is no acknowledgement of the United Kingdom's involvement in slavery yes. at all, because it was happening 5,000 miles away. It's an incredible whitewashing of history mm. where the average person doesn't know the United Kingdom's involvement. And it's specifically interesting that it was the tablet in Scotland that spurred this all off because no one even, you know, going the next step, no one even knows the Scottish involvement. Yeah. And I've only found out last year from an article that the wealth of the Scottish Highlands directly comes from the very the very specific region that my family were enslaved in demerara demerara sugar you know? <laughs> and so sweet tooth is constantly shifting between these historical aspects that one might not know in the uk and i and i find it interesting where you decided to put on the works um which were spaces that had directly benefited financially from the slave trade which you know which would be great to talk about but as you say also it's shifting between realization and celebration 
of the culture that has come from that because you're yes. right you know survivors the the multi the multi-layered identities that we now have as a result of you know sure being of African descent but via the Caribbean and then back to the UK who were <laughs> you know the people who started the whole thing off in the first place <laughs> And so it's a really interesting commentary on all of that. I can talk about this for hours and <laughs> maybe I'll highlight my, um, my favourite parts musically, but, but what do you think? Well, I, I mean, I, I think you've, you've uh, kind of covered everything, actually. Oh. <laughs> As you know, when you're writing something or you're creating something or you're devising something, you're so in it that you, you can't observe it from outside. So for me, it's fascinating to to hear what you have to say about the piece because it is all those things that you've said and it's also the revelations that come from it because the person on the street, it is a very British thing to say, okay, yeah, but that was in the past. Mm. You know, that was 400 years ago. Mm. You know, we've, we've moved on since then, but no, actually we haven't. And it's that same kind of erasure or, or uh, it's, it's, it's very dismissive. Mm. And we will not be dismissed because actually the UK has benefited from black people, mm. its culture, this blood and sweat and tears, mm. and they can't deny that. Mm. We're in the very fabric of the society. And I think people get very, a bit afraid of it, you know, and um, also when we are vocal about it, you know, it unnerves people. Mm. You know, we, we're not subordinate, we're not subservient, and we're proud of our culture. And we're proud, you know, I actually like being British. Mm. I know it's, it's not a cool thing at the moment with politically what's going on. <laughs> I guess what I say, I say, I like coming from London, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah, I'm a Londoner as well. And, yeah, and I, so just, so, I think it could be different if that were not the case. Yeah, yeah I mean, but it's, but it's this awareness. I just want people to be aware. I want people to acknowledge it and then we can build a fairer society you know we can understand why there are these inequalities you were right about scotland scotland has you know in the last 15 years or so kind of come to terms with its its links its strong its, its influence and what it did you know the, the scottish were the great administrators of the slave trade i think it was professor james devine who wrote about Scotland and the slave trade, it's like 20 years ago. And he was given a very difficult time mm. about it. Jackie Kay, the poet, wrote an, an excellent article about this um, in, I think, 2000 for The Guardian. And where she, you know, she said she didn't know, she wasn't raised with this knowledge, mm. but it's something that cannot be obscured. Um, so seeing, in during lockdown, well, just as lockdown was being lifted and seeing Colston's, Edward Colston's oh, yeah. statue being yanked and pulled down and dragged into the River Avon, I was just so happy. I know. I so, um, <laughs> so he was a prominent slave trader and um, in Bristol, in Bristol yeah. specifically. So in the United Kingdom, for obvious reasons, a lot of the port cities you know, benefited from the slave trade because, you know, that's where the ships docked. So, yes. you know, for obvious reasons, you know, they have connections to slavery. So Plymouth and Liverpool, you know, all of these cities. And he used a lot of that money to, to quite literally, you know, build up the city. So there's Colston Hall, um, you know, lots of places named after him. And during the Black Lives Matter uprising this year in 2020, there's been a lot of dashing down um, statues, um, which I also I think is great as well. Um, yeah. Someone re reminded me of something that I said last year about statues need to be removed. Mm. And I don't remember saying this. It's in an interview somewhere, oops. Um, <laughs> but I thought, did I say that? Well, I must have been thinking about it because those statues, those monuments, they were put there by private benefactors and maybe even the families, they're not, it's not public money. So it doesn't represent the public. And what, what I liked about that action was that it was the people of Bristol, mm. white people, mm. who dragged that statue down. Yeah. And I think that was a very important thing to happen. 
and the police did not intervene. Mm. And that was I, wise. I think, yeah. I mean, I think they did arrest a few people afterwards. They did. <laughs> they arrested, but they let them go. They let them go because, oh, okay. yeah, nobody was charged. They just, uh, they were sent to apologise for, I don't know, maybe criminal damage or something. But right, right, right. It was, and I thought, that's really wise. That's wise. That's um, and this is, it's that kind of wisdom. Is, we need that. Mm. We need understanding and acknowledgement. And that's what Sweet Tooth is asking, is mm. asking. And that's why I realised not long after we premiered it in 2017 at um, Blue Coat, the Blue Coat Art Centre in Liverpool, which was the major slaving port. And the Blue Coat was a school for uh, underprivileged children. The, the money came from prominent plantation slave owners from Liverpool. So it's got this really heavy history but after we premiered it I thought well this isn't just about the UK this is about Western Europe a quick Wikipedia <laughs> search will throw up things yeah France all of them the Netherlands Portugal Spain, Portugal, Netherlands, Spain Germany I mean there's these huge debates Belgium Mm. why I took it to Norway is because Norway is also mm. involved yeah. in it and so yeah these questions need to be asked and people need to understand their history and I think well personally I you know think people need to understand because you know as you were alluding to earlier is that the very foundation and the structure on which we stand today and the wealth of these western nations quite literally is on the back of black slaves like yeah. I th and i think that's that's for me it feels like that's the link that's missing in in western europe let's say um because yeah. I, I generally do think there's a lack of understanding like quite literally so the wealth of scotland the wealth we see in england throughout the united kingdom quite mm. a lot of that is generated or has been generated from those times so, you know, that's the, the nub for me. But I wonder how the participants in your work react to that, because having seen Sweet Tooth um, at St George's, um, the church in London, I think you said that the altar was made... Yes, from, from ebony wood from Antigua. From Antigua, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and for me, the performance in that space is particularly captivating... I think because of the setting and sort of, I don't know, there's something quite haunting and ghostly about it. Um, yeah. I think knowing that fact and, and also that, you know, the audience is like crammed in and, yeah. you know, and I've heard you say that, you know, you kind of want um, the participants, which I'm going to call them now, I just, you know, just call them an audience, <laughs> to, feel, to, call it. Yeah. to feel as uncomfortable as possible and and also your work is you know it's not just an oral experience in um, oral with an a you know it's an embodiment you know it touches all of the senses it's multi-sensory oh elaine's just relocating <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> <Hi>. tony it's <laughs> hannah waving to you Hi, Tony. Mm. <laughs> Hi. I haven't washed the dishes. Been in an interview. Oh, this is, <laughs> okay, sorry this about is that. 20, no, this is 2020. Um, this well, yeah, exactly. You know, and, uh, yeah, so Sweet Tooth. It is, it's a multi-sensory experience, I find. Yeah. It touches on all of the senses. And as you were saying earlier, the space is incredibly important and I think you refer to it as charging the space yeah and and I find it interesting I can see in the structure throughout your works that you're very specifically you know there are trigger points where you're actively charging the space in new and different ways you know that reaches those who are participating in your work so two of my favorite moments in sweet teeth are i mean there are so many but two that stand out right now is the way in which you use your body 
I think this is towards the, the beginning of Sweet Tooth. And I don't know if this is right, but it feels as though you eventually contort your body into some kind of windmill. Windmill. And it's about the way that you're driving the air, like quite literally the air particles and how your body is moving the air particles in a way that that eventually reaches the participants in different ways, you know, just mm. because of how physics work. And the sound that your body makes by moving through the air mm. is recreating the sounds of the plantations and the fact that the Caribbean at one point would have been, you know, peppered with all of these windmills yeah. grinding sugar and that you know, would have been a prominent sound world of yeah. the Caribbean. And you just kind of bring it, you know, right into the space in that moment. Thank you. It's a really, that was basically the idea, um, because what I wanted to highlight and to kind of reinforce was the way that people became the machine. They were, you dehumanise someone by turning them mm. into this kind of machine, this relentless thing. And so that, so it was this shifting of the space and the windmill, but also it's the person that is working it, mm. you know, losing a limb, being mm. replaced, exhaustion, mm. not being able to stop, mm. you know, and it's that whole, it was to capture that kind of, that the essence of that really. Mm. Um, and that is the humanity, that is the human essence, I think, mm. because it's really easy to, working with the archives that, that was, given to me I thought I knew things mm. I, I had a, a, a fairly general knowledge um, of that period but not in great detail so that's why working with a historical consultant was really helpful because then I could use that material and work with it mm. whereas you're a historian you you gather that material and you can mm. be rather clinical about it at arm's length but our job is to animate it reanimate it mm. and make turn it into something that is very visceral and tangible and that will help to people to question the systems or to feel something you know and it so that whole ex packing everyone in together they wouldn't know but they are participants because they've been they're traveling mm. they're in the bowels of the they're in the hull of that ship they're in a more comfortable situation because they can stretch out and they've got their coats and they're comfortable. But actually, by the end of the night, they realise that they've been very intimate. Mm. They've got their leg or their arm next to someone who's probably, they don't know. And it would have been, it was a, a horrific situation mm. when you see those drawings, yeah. those etchings of how mm. enslaved people were transported. I thought, how could I not recreate it? Because you can't recreate it, and I wouldn't. Mm. But just to allude to that discomfort, mm. so even as an audience member, you don't, you know, that is what you are experiencing, and that's what makes the whole piece very exhausting for for people because they, yeah. they don't realise that actually that's what I've had confined them mm. for fifty minutes, and they're not going anywhere. Yeah. You yeah. can't get out because once you, when you were captured and sold on and then placed on our plantation, you weren't going anywhere, you know. And so you don't actually have to say it, but you can do things yeah. that references it mm. physically. And so this whole the thing with the windmill, and that is for me, just a that comes back again later in the, the, the at the mill where I, I asked for the other members of the quartet to take the bamboo sticks and we're mm. doing things on the floor and we're beating them so this mm. becomes the thing that whips someone mm. but then it becomes the the part of the machinery mm. but then it becomes a percussive instrument mm. it's subversive well that's my that's my second that's my second favorite moment oh, because <laughs> and I think it's because it's, it's almost like the trickery because on the face of it it could just be an interesting sound element of a piece of newly devised work you know it just it sounds pretty cool you know the bamboo sticks and the way in which they cut through the air it sounds great you know yeah but actually but when you dig deeper and you step back and you think hang on you know this whipping sound most likely would have been 
a very integrated and normalized part of the plantation sound world yeah and it's the and i and i just love the you know one could just look at it superficially but actually if you dig down deeper if you i don't know like if you choose to or i don't know if that if that's you know explicit enough i mean i don't know i mean that's and i think i get it because you know we have similar backgrounds i'm like wait no hang on this would have been a part every day daily life daily life every yeah. single day yeah well i get to that bit because also there's a it's kind of like a a song that is sung and celebrated and there's like a moment of mm. levity and you know but even that is cut <laughs> when Jason starts screaming through his mm. saxophone. And so it's always nothing, you, you weren't able to enjoy things too much or you were there yeah. to entertain, but only to a certain point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't enjoy yourself too much. Yeah. We're gonna stop that. So it's this control, but I think the, towards the end where I'm quoting from Simon Taylor's diaries and his paranoia and because he's hearing about all these other revolts happening mm. on different islands, yeah. I really, I enjoyed that moment because that is, you know, this is changes happening. Mm. You know, mm. this kind of oppression is not going to last. It's lasted mm. long enough. The changes and I, I love Feedy kind of playing on his paranoia and the fact that he's, he knows that he's losing control mm. and that it kind of resolves, not resolves, but it, it points to the future. The evocation that I sing at the beginning which is from a Kamina kind of text. It's, yeah. uh, that's about the, evoking the spirits that are going to take that individual mm. and carry them through. So it's, it you know. That happens in my opera. I didn't know that. In my, in my oh, opera, it's... The Knife of Dawn. Yeah, oh, really? from Kamina, yeah. Oh, and the um, <laughs> And the pit choir, like the three singers who ah. are sort of the ghostly continuation of it's there it's there in the dna yeah, it's wow. there the heritage yeah so Camino, he was um he was you know a, well, a rebel slave in quote so a yeah. slave who was part of those uprisings oh, brilliant shall we talk about a bit about who you collaborate with so you mentioned yes the quartet that... you work with and how you work in general and you know. yeah i mean it's um I love collaboration because you, you know, you learn so much. For Sweet Tooth, it, I brought on board um, Jason Yard, who's a multi-instrumentalist, he's a saxophonist, fantastic composer, known more for jazz, but mm-hmm. he has written orchestral works. For, he's a Panufnik. Uh, oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, um, commission, yeah, I think. With composer. the London Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I, really, I really love those pieces that he's written for them. Mm. Primar- primarily known as a jazz mm-hmm. musician. So Jason Mark Sanders, who's an incredible free improv drummer, percussionist, um, who I've known and performed with for many years. Um, also, I perform with Jason now, um, and uh, Sylvia Hallett, who is also an incredible composer and works more in theatre, but also free improv as well. Really mm-hmm. very unique musical identities. And as a quartet, we've never worked together. So we, oh. it was a complete journey, new journey for us. And I, I could have made it an all black kind of quartet, but I didn't want to do that because that's just a bit too easy. Mm. And I just felt, you know, this isn't a, a, a black history piece. Mm. You know, this is a British history piece or mm. this is a European history piece. Mm. So it needs to reflect that. Um, and the uh, choreographer was, uh, was a long-term collaborator who's Viet- Vietnamese-American, mm. Dan Van Huyn, who has choreographed a couple of my solo pieces as well. And so Darm had the difficult job of moving um, instrumentalists around in a way yeah. that looks natural, you right. know, not yeah. like wooden soldiers and stuff. So <laughs> it was because I, I, I don't want people who work with me to think that they're going to have an easy ride of it. Because the easy <laughs> thing would have been I sing and move around and they just play in the background. It's like, nah, yeah. nah, 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 you've got tasks. We're going to get you to do things. Wow. So, yeah. so it was, it's very much in their bodies now. So it's, um, 
it's really great when we get together to represent the work, but also what I ask them to do is to represent it thinking about what has happened in the world so that it always stays relevant and fresh mm. and that what we when we journey through the piece that it feels like it's the first time it's happened mm. so we don't just go back to oh this is how I did it last time this is how it felt last mm. time I'm not interested in that I want to know how it's feeling now yeah I mean and I love the way you interact in the work and I think there are moments where you do that one-on-one -on -one with each of them yes. and you can tell that I mean you can tell that the way that you do it on one night wouldn't be you know how you did it the previous night for example it's it seems immediate that you're I, I mean I don't know if you have you know a collection of notes ahead of you know the performance but yeah it's certainly it, it I mean it doesn't it almost doesn't seem that way and it's almost as though it's a live reaction but that's the what I put in place um I had particular sound worlds that I wanted us to explore it's kind of a skeleton which allows us to develop and be very present so there are certain things that I need them to do but I, what I don't want is that we just feel stuck in a particular musical range of uh, that, that we feel free to explore but still maintain the shape of the piece because you know we have 50 minutes to, to present it mm. so we can't go off piste too much <laughs> but also we do decide on the instrumentation but then actually we're open to things changing so and I trust them like in Bergen I think Mark made a slight change he brought a different kind of hand drum or something mm. or a different beat uh, you know stick and I was like yeah I really love that sound and then for the evocation Mark needed a saw to do some DIY Mm. Sylvia picked up the saw said I love this saw and started playing it wow. and then I said we need the saw and so that we will always have a saw <laughs> <laughs> we hadn't done it before you know we just tried it in March and I just loved it but this is this is what we needed this is what we needed That's so and great. because she plays the saw you know and she's really brilliant at it so it's like <laughs> which moment does that happen that happens at the beginning with the evocation with the uh, Kamina song okay yes and also at the end it comes back so because it's just got this amazing kind of watery mm. ethereal sound mystical sounds to it so i was like why hadn't i thought of that before mm. oh if i was a proper composer I might have thought oh no stop saying that <laughs> but what's the, but it's great that um you know that you say about your works though is that they're not fixed in time and space and place they have that capacity to grow and to evolve and to change. I know you specifically said that about um, your more recent work, the then and the now equals the now, now time. time. Yes. yes, yeah. Which is inspired by um, a series of texts. But you know, you said that it has the space for new texts to be um, to be used, and yeah. and that's something that I'm particularly drawn to in your works as well. That they they have the ability to evolve. I suppose I'm saying it doesn't really matter that you didn't think about the saw earlier on because, you know, for whatever reason, you know, it came in at a later moment. But, you know, I love that idea of the watery sounds that you mentioned because, you know, water is such a huge aspect of, you mm -hmm. know, the middle passage and, you know, transportation and relationship to water and all of these things. Yes. Definitely. I like to keep that level of unpredictability as well. Mm. Um, and I guess that's the improvisatory aspect of the way I've worked, the people I've worked with as improvisers and as well as more conventional instrumentalists or singers. But I like the fact that, I mean, you never quite know what's going to happen on the stand. So mm. you, you just don't need to be thrown off. Well, you know it's like oh okay right okay i'm over here i should be over there you know <laughs> but will that matter does it really matter because it could also open up for more interesting experiences or it could be a car crash but that's also interesting in its own way so but you can't be afraid of of that happening and um with, with the solo piece the then plus the now because now time when I presented that at Merz Music in 2019 in Berlin, I went to the dress run. Uh, we did it in silent green, which was a crematorium. 
Oh, and wow. um, it's a really incredible space and not so it's not a theater and so it threw it threw up other uh, problems but i worked with my bass player neil charles who has a studio so i, I said no I've, I've got to create this electronic piece so it's very old school kind of him being studio technician and me mm. being a bit kind of a visionary ear cam light i want this can you find that so uh, but i He'd never worked in a long form because he produces like grime artists and R&B artists. On oh, the side. yeah, he does I that. didn't and know that. Yeah, he does that. He's very good at it as well, you know. And so, yeah. said, but then he's, you know, he's an orchestral musician as well. So, hmm. he, so he understands the long form. But I said, yeah, this isn't a three-minute piece. This is fifty. I, I cursed myself because it should have been, maybe it should have been fifteen, but. You know, no. but uh, but there were days. There were days. <laughs> oh sure, it felt like it should. I get. Yeah, I understand. You know what I mean. Yeah, so yeah, I like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so um, there, I, I I said to to him, I need a sub bass. There needs to be a moment where there's this. It needs to be this real. I mean, and that I kind of stole that from the experience of doing some backing vocals for Goldie Timeless. Um, oh wow yes i did that he just dropped that in (laughs) yeah it was just oh you know when he kind of was touring this timeless album it was uh, the heritage orchestra and it's actually really good fun (laughs) to say i bet it was oh my god in the soundtrack at the festival hall they were testing this the bass and Mm. it was so low i thought i'm gonna throw up it just went through my body but clearly it made a it it was a defining moment for me because i thought i want that back well, that is, that's one of the most powerful moments for me in this, in the piece, it's the sub bass. And it's because, yeah. It's, it's your clubbing days, Hannah. Well, it's your clubbing days. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're not over, by the way. <laughs> well, maybe this year. Yeah, 2020. But, but, but I think it just kind of encapsulates that, um, that again, that, that black Britishness. And, it, you know, it's interesting that you experienced it while singing VVs for, uh, for Goldie. Oh, do people know who Goldie is? Um, you can Google. You can Google. Yeah, Google. Yeah. Google Goldie, yeah. Because, you know, what I find in this work is that at any given moment, I don't know how you do it, but at any given moment, you're simultaneously referencing different moments in history. It's so clever. And especially because you know the title which is you know referencing the then and the now equals now time and so what I mean by that by using the sub bass it does remind me of my clubbing days and I think possibly your own clubbing days yeah so but very specifically to the 90s of the music so it's very very UK very British I suppose drum and bass, you know, using the sub bass, which is about, it's not meant to be heard, really. It's about the feeling of about being in a club that, you know, is like reverberating, that you can feel it in your body. And then on top of that, you know, you're referencing, you know, through the text, African-Americanism and the Caribbean, um, and Walter Benjamin as well. <laughs> exactly. All in, boom, in one moment from, and it's, and it's from one minute to the next. And it's so, so, so clever. I, I don't know, I just felt like it was the thing to do. Because when I was looking at his text, in Benjamin's text, uh, photography was very important to him. It was at the birth of photography, kind of capturing a moment in time. But then talking about history and how we choose to remember it and his arcades project and it's just Mm. I thought I wanted to create these oral pictures in the piece that would push us through time so it would evoke the past and the present and the future Mm. and we weren't quite sure where we were but we were experiencing it all at once I wasn't sure if I I was able to do it but actually when I was in it I felt it Mm. so um, the David Lammy speech, mm. um, which was a, in Parliament about the Windrush scandal and the mistreatment of those who were caught up in it. Someone, the, the, actually the director of the festival, 
he knew about this speech, but I don't think he'd heard it. So when we were doing a dress run, he heard he came in at that point. And we spoke afterwards, he said, it sounds, when was that speech? It sounds like it was 50 years ago. And I was like, no, it was last year. You know, and that's what, and I thought, yes, I've done it. Yeah, because it's because of the the manner and the way that he uh, Lamy delivers the speech. It's very it's in rather an old fashioned way. Mm. It's not a way that we're used to hearing parliamentarians speak now. Mm. But it it was right, mm. you know, and his anger was right. And mm. you know, I don't actually say anything when that's happening. Mm. I think I'm physically doing things, but I'm just letting yeah it speak. Speak for itself. And just, yeah, so just to maybe explain, so David Lammy, he is a British Member of Parliament um, of um, Guyanese heritage, and he was referencing the Windrush scandal. Um, and Windrush is, um, so it's an iconic ship that brought over British citizens from the Caribbean. And I very specifically, I say British citizens, not British subjects or any of that, because um, at that time, the Caribbean colonies were part of the UK. So, yes. you know, that's a personal thing for me. And my, you know, my grandparents were part of that generation and they had every right to come over to live in the United Kingdom as British people. Um, and the whole scandal is that um, the, um, the children of that generation who came over as British people, you know, it came about um, a few years ago that um, because the laws had changed, they didn't have the right paperwork to prove that they were British and that they had a right to be in the United Kingdom. Yeah. And it turns out the government had been, you know, systematically deporting them or they would find that, you know, they would leave the country for the first time in, adult, in adulthood and find that they couldn't come back into the country. And to make it worse, the government had destroyed the paperwork um, to, to, to prove this. So that's the scandal that we're referring to. And um, what Lamy was, is protest a word? I mean, I don't know. It's yeah, it was calling, calling, holding the um, Home Secretary to account. Sure. You know, yeah. and asking for, well, wanting to right the wrongs that had been done. So... Mm you know not just an apology but what are you going to do about it yeah. you know and at that point he spoke for everyone for mm. and in terms of every afro-caribbean person mm. i mean i certainly i was very proud that he captured the essence of of the anger the level of anger and also that there were white british people who were angry about it because they couldn't understand how this could happen but also the, the the papers that were destroyed were destroyed under the Blair government so mm. they were all complicit in this yeah you know not just Tories but Labour government mm. which uh, historically has been supported by people from, from the Caribbean so yeah. you know it's just like we don't belong anywhere you know <laughs> um, it was it, it was a terrible time it's, but it felt like the right thing to put in this piece because it's about mm. something an historical event mm. and that legacy of it the actions and what mm. we're choosing to remember the denials mm. yeah the historical event that is very present and that is yes. quite literally still ongoing yeah yeah and and I just and you know I really love that moment in the piece because as you say that is one place where you know it's very direct and he's um you know he's speaking the speech as he said it but although to, what I noticed was that because I I watched the original and I watched how you recreated it in your work and you have actually added space in between the lines um yes and and it's you know sort of stretching the time and somehow manipulating the rhetoric which makes it more powerful I think and I don't know if that was purposeful or yes that was I, I did want to quote the whole the entire speech I, I drew this more salient points to make it you know more direct mm. um because I felt that would be the right thing to do as well you know if people want to hear the whole thing they can it's on yeah. YouTube. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they can yeah. they can hear it. Um, but that was 
it was funny because in the performance, I was just thinking about things being unpredictable. And when we did the dress run, towards the end, I have to go into a plank, right? And then yes. sing a whole, right? Sing. <laughs> so in the rehearsal, I remember complaining to Dom, I said, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm going to be too tired. And you know, once the lights, you know, and you're caught up in it, the adrenaline. I got. I thought, okay, right. If I do this, uh, and I'm, mm. I'm coming up to the plank, I'm like, ah! <laughs> and I just went with kind of shooting out all this text, and then there was like spittle and saliva, and, blah, and I thought, oh yes, it's, yes. And in the version that I've watched, you do it for well over a minute, and it's hard enough just doing the plank, but then you're also um, reciting the text and the. And it's a moment in the piece where it's exceptionally heightened and it feels like this club scene. And, you know, the way that you're speaking sounds like reggae chatter. It's like this a collision and a sort of a blended collision of all of these different sound worlds that we attribute to different, to different histories. So there's reggae, which is Caribbean, and there's reference to classical music, and then there's dubstep, which is British, and, but that's just come out of Billie Holiday's Strange Fruits, Strange yes, yeah. which I deconstruct as exactly. well. Exactly, yeah. and so it's just absolutely superb. I mean, I don't even know how long we've been speaking for, but I feel like, you know, maybe we should wrap up now. Yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> it's been great. I've loved <laughs> it. It's been wonderful. But, um, but is there anything that I've missed out on? No, you haven't missed out on anything. It, I mean, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, it always is. Thank you for the support of my work and things and, and for wow, Tack inviting yeah oh thank you Tag. thank you elaine like genuinely just i can't wait for the next thing you're doing such important and exciting work and unique work and i think it's what we're all hungry for now so thank you so much for joining me thank you thank Thank you. you see you soon see you bye sincere thanks to hannah and elaine for visiting the talk editions podcast This episode was produced by Hannah Kendall in collaboration with Talk Ensemble and edited by Charlotte Mundy. The music you heard throughout this episode was from Elaine's work, Sweet Tooth. You can watch a video of the entire piece at her website, elainemitchener.com. You can also catch a live stream of Elaine performing as a soloist with the London Sinfonietta in a program that she co-curated with George Lewis on October 28th. You can access that via the BBC Radio 3 website. And Hannah Kendall has a performance coming up on October 24th. If you're listening from London, you can see her opera, The Knife of Dawn, in a live, socially distanced performance at the Royal Opera House. If you live anywhere else in the world, you can watch the performance via live stream on the Royal Opera House website. You can find links to all of these performances in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening.